0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. I will make a disclaimer as we start the message today, though. I'll make a couple of disclaimers. One, uh, it may seem as if I'm throwing a lot at you today. It may not, but today's idea is pretty simple. But I'm going to try to break it down in such a way that we kind of get different parts, different aspects of the main idea. And so if it seems like there's a lot up here to write down, just write it down, get as much as you can now, and then over this week, maybe watch or listen, look over the notes again, and and let it soak in a little bit. The second disclaimer is, at some point today, I will probably make everybody here mad in some way, all right? So I'm going to check that box. There will be some things that I say today where you will think I'm being too soft, or I'm being too gray in how the world works. And then I'll say something a couple minutes later and others of you will think I'm being too harsh and I'm being too black and white on certain things. So that's what you have to look forward to as we enter into week eight of our series, New Thing. We're looking at sort of the end of this, one of the first large public events in the life of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. So Peter and John have healed a lame man in the power of Jesus. Now they're preaching in his name, the religious authority, arrest them overnight for doing that then they question them and threaten them to not do that anymore and then Peter as we talked about a few weeks ago preaches a message of salvation to them and then they shoo them away and the, the leaders sort of reconvene and talk about sort of recap what's going on and what do we do now. We covered this same text last week and talked about two things that we don't want to do uh, so we can have the right response, but we'll look at the third one today. So let's look at this short text this morning one more time. And then next week, we'll kind of be off of this story. We've been on this same sort of story for the whole time of the series, right? The healing was in week one, and now we're in week eight, still talking about the aftermath of this same event. Uh, next week on father's day we will kind of get past this event to a certain extent i'm really excited about next week's message i've been working on it for like a month it's it's i'm very excited about it and then the following week we'll kind of finish up for the most part this series idea and then move on in our study in acts so let's look here again it's acts chapter 4 we're going to start at verse 18 through verse 22 so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of jesus But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years." We looked at the same passage last week and started with how we have the right response when our faith is under attack. We looked at two main ideas. I'll recap them very quickly, then we'll move on to the third idea that we see from this text. So the two things we looked at last week in order to have the right response when our faith is attacked is first, don't fear. Even when the pressure's on, even if you're outnumbered, even if there are powerful forces trying to stop you from living out and expressing your faith don't fear. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't be intimidated through fear. And the second one that's connected then is don't quit. We looked at Galatians 6, 9 last week. Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. So even though the pressure of society wants to stop you from living out your faith, don't quit. Even though maybe relationships in your life are in the balance because of your faith, don't quit. There's nothing worth giving up your faith for. There's nothing worth stop, stopping expressing your faith for. The work that God has for you to do in your life and through your life to impact people around you is too important to stop through fear or discouragement and quit. Okay? So that's what we looked at last week. There's one more thing, though, that Peter and John do here or really don't do here that we can also not do when our faith in Jesus is maybe under attack. So the main idea today that we'll look at is this encouragement, don't undercut. So we talked about don't fear, don't quit, but also don't undercut. Now, what does that mean? It might be helpful if I define what that means because that can mean any number of things. So here's our working definition of what we're talking about today. What does it mean to undercut? It's, here's what we're going to look at. To undercut means to speak, act, or respond in a way that would negatively impact the name and reputation of Jesus, or in a way that would incorrectly execute the mission of Jesus. So, to undercut really your, your faith, your witness, is to speak, act, or respond in a way that would negatively impact the name and reputation of Jesus, or in a way that would incorrectly execute the mission of Jesus. So while we don't want to fear, while we don't want to quit in our faith, we also don't want to undercut our efforts in our faith. So we don't want to undercut our faith, our witness, and our efforts. And so there's two main fronts that we have to kind of fight this urge to undercut our faith. There's two main fronts that we'll look at today um, that we want to avoid undercutting our efforts and our faith. The first one is simply personally. We don't want to undercut our efforts personally with others in our day-to-day lives. Now, Peter lived this out in a way here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, they they lived this out. But then later on in his letters, Peter writes more extensively about what this means and more specifics, more detail about what does this mean. If he were to be telling us, don't undercut your faith like I didn't do in Acts 4, in Acts chapter 4, here's what he would say. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So, this is the same guy in Acts 4 now writing about sort of the same idea. He says this Now, who would want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Remember, that's what he asked the religious leaders in Acts 4? Are we really being arrested for healing a lame man? Is that why we're under attack for doing a good thing? He says it here Who would want to harm you for doing good? But, he says, even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. Remember, we're trying to fully and correctly represent Jesus in our life of faith. We're trying to fully and correctly emulate Jesus in our faith. We're trying to draw people to Jesus through our life of faith. And sometimes, especially when our faith is under attack, when we are under attack for our faith, that's more easily said than done, isn't it? It's more easy, it's easy to say like now in the safety of this room when I can block out the world for maybe an hour or so, yes, I should respond the right way and I should react the right way and I should speak the right way, but it's different when the pressure's on. It's different when everything around you is pushing at you, prodding at you, uh, coming against you, attacking you, being an obstacle, opposition to your faith. So what's the secret? Peter gives us this instruction here in 1 Peter 3, but we can see Jesus is our inspiration in this, in living life this way. And so we, we read what Peter wrote just a second ago, but John is also with him. It's Peter and John in Acts 4, okay? John also, he has a very, he goes back to Jesus in his writing too, In John 1, the gospel of John, who the same guy in Acts 4 wrote this book, okay? So he, he describes Jesus with a very interesting descriptor, In John chapter 1, here's what he says about Jesus. The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. This was a major factor John noticed in Jesus' ministry. This was a major factor in his approach, his interactions with all types of people, grace and truth. We need both of these. We have to balance these two ideas out. It's not one or the other, it's not one more than the other, it is both of these together working to live this kind of life that doesn't undercut our efforts in our faith, even when we're under attack, even in the moments where we want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, uh, we, we have to have this grace and truth. So there's a, a checklist of grace and truth that I want to go through for just a second, and then we'll look at two case studies in the life of Jesus and see if he checks all these boxes and see what we can learn from that. So, grace and truth has three parts to it that we'll look at for a few minutes. First, it engages with others. Grace and truth engages with others. Grace and truth disagrees agreeably. I know you're getting mad already, some of you, okay? Grace and truth also offers an alternative. We need both of these in order to check all these boxes to live the way of Jesus. Let's look at two examples from his life just for a few minutes and see how he checks these boxes in different situations with people that he's not like. There are people that he interacts with that we'll look at, he wouldn't have voted like them. He had different moral thoughts than they did. He had different religious thoughts. He had different philosophies on life than they did, yet he checked all these boxes by living in grace and truth. The first example is in John chapter four, uh, he and his disciples are at this well in Samaria. So this is not Jewish territory, it's Samaritan territory. They have a, a history, Jews and Samaritans have a long history. They don't get along, they don't think alike, they don't act alike, they live similarly. But as we'll see in, their com- in the conversation Jesus has with the woman here, there, there's some tension, there's some hostility here. So they're at this well in the middle of the day, a woman comes by herself to get water. Jesus does the first thing on our list. He engages with this woman. He doesn't ignore her. He knows she's a Samaritan, and yet, so he really culturally shouldn't talk to her. He is a single uh, adult Jewish teacher, and she's, you know, coming by herself, so he probably culturally should not engage with her, yet he does. He's full of grace and truth. He starts a conversation with this woman. And in this conversation, they disagree agreeably, or at least Jesus does. She does a pretty good job too. But a big chunk of their conversation is about their differences of religious view. So she's like, well, we we Samaritans worship God in this way, and this is the only way. And you Jews worship God at this mountain in this way, and you think it's the only way. So we we just can't get along here. And Jesus disagrees agreeably with her. There is a history with these people groups but Jesus doesn't label this woman. He doesn't name call her. He doesn't denigrate her for her beliefs because they're different than his. He just agree, disagrees agreeably as he engages with her. And then the third thing that Jesus does is he offers her an alternative. Because what he, what he says to her, and he says it in an interesting way, but he points out, he's like, hey, you know what I've noticed about your life in this maybe 20-minute conversation? The way that you're living life isn't working too great for you. You're running from man to man to relationship to relationship to find acceptance and love, and all you found is shame and rejection. You've actually discovered the opposite of what you're searching for because you're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. That's why you are coming by yourself to the well in the middle of the day instead of coming with the other women in the morning. She's, she's looked for love and acceptance and found shame and rejection. Jesus says, hey, guess what? There's a better way to live your life. You can find it in me. He says, you come to this well every day for more water, but if you take the water that I offer you, you will never thirst again. And then he reveals to her clearly he's the Messiah that really both their people groups have waited for, looked for, longed for. She can leave this life that's not working and find a different way in him. She, he f- gives her an alternative. Now, what he does do is he does expose the sin that she's living in, in that conversation. So remember, it's grace and truth. He's not skirting issues. He's also not trying to point his finger in her face and make her feel shame. She already feels enough shame. She doesn't need any more shame plopped on top of her. She's, all, she's already rejected. She's already by herself. She's already ostracized from her town for living the kind of life that she's been living. But Jesus, while he points that out to her, it's more of showing this juxtaposition, this alternative. This way of life that you're living isn't working. I'm offering you a way that works. He offers this alternative. And from that, she goes back and brings back the entire neighborhood. And says, you're never going to believe who I just met. And the entire neighborhood is transformed because Jesus lived a life of grace and truth. The second example is in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is walking by, and he sees this young tax collector, Jewish tax collector, named Matthew sitting at his table. And Jesus engages with him, and he simply says, hey, Matt, follow me. He engages with him. He, he could, like, snub his nose, and he could say, oh, man, you're a, you know, you're a traitor, you're supposed to be one of us, and you're working for the enemy, the, the Roman government? How dare you, Matthew? But he doesn't, right? He engages him and disagrees agreeably all in one time. He just two words, follow me. He does these first two check-in-the-boxes with two words. It's pretty amazing how sometimes the less we say, the, the more we're saying. I think that's a pretty, pretty good way maybe to live sometimes. So he engages and disagrees agreeably, and in that, he also offers an alternative for Matthew. Because what Matthew's done, he's sold out for money. He's sold out to work for the evil Roman Empire because it's going to help his own life, his bank account. Well, i got to provide somehow, so I might as well work for them. It's better than fishing. It's better than carpentry. That's really all this crummy town does, so I guess i got to just you know, go over to the dark side. And Jesus offers him a different way to look at life, a different way to look at success a different, a different kind of riches that Jesus offers him that will really have more of an impact on Matthew. And then even the alternative gets in, and really the engagement, this whole thing builds even more because Matthew is just entranced by this offer from Jesus and he throws Jesus a huge party at his house with other tax collectors and other sinners. That's where Jesus finds himself a lot because he's full of grace and truth which we'll get to more of that here in a few minutes. So he's at this party, but the religious people, okay, they're looking at this and saying, why does this good moral teacher hang out with these sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? What is the deal with this guy? And Jesus then to them even shows an alternative. He says, it's not the healthy people that need a doctor, but sick people And so what he's saying is there's an alternative. These people that I'm spending this time with, that you look down upon and you judge and you wag your finger at them, right? They're sick in need of a doctor. And guess what? The doctor is in. He will see you now. That's what I've come to do is what Jesus says. I've not come to make them feel more shame, more guilt, more regret. That's what they live in. That's not what I'm here for, right? I have come to make the sick well. And we know that he gained at least one disciple, Matthew Right? And maybe some others in that party became some of the other outer fringes of followers because he was full of grace and truth. Truth will challenge people in their beliefs, in their lifestyles. It will. But grace will attract them to the alternative that we should also be offering. Truth in Jesus is exclusive Remember in earlier in chapter four, Peter preaches, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's not about being a good person. It's not about being a moral person. It's not about which party you vote for. It's not about what you think about yourself or how you measure yourself against somebody else. It is simply Jesus. It's exclusive. Truth is exclusive. It is this or that. It is one or the other. Okay. But grace opens the invitation to make that choice. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So it is, the gospel is the most exclusive club ever, but it's also at the same time the most inclusive club ever. It's both at the same time. Grace and truth. That's what we see in Jesus. So let's look now that we've seen how it works together. The problem is Jesus did this perfectly like he did everything right perfectly the problem is i ain't jesus and neither are you so we have a much harder time than jesus getting this balance right most of the time we focus on one or the other more than we should there's an imbalance so what i want to do is look at the danger of one over the other in both situations on both sides of the scale to see why we need both because, again, we're trying not to undercut our faith, and we do that. If I'm, only, if I'm only focused on the grace, I undercut what faith in Christ really is, and we'll talk about that. If I only live in truth, I undercut what the gospel really is. So let's look at it here for just, just a couple minutes. So let's look at grace without truth first. Grace without truth, here's how I would describe it. Grace without truth is a Band-Aid on a wound that requires stitches. Or really surgery is a better probably a better example uh, for that grace without truth is a band-aid on a wound that requires stitches or surgery grace without truth tells someone well your sin isn't that bad but here's the problem they're lost and searching and driving headed straight for the edge of the cliff at warp speed there's a problem without Christ in their life. There's a problem, but grace says, "Oh, it's not that bad." Well, yeah, it's going to hurt pretty bad when they crash at the bottom of that cliff. That's a big deal. They need surgery, not a band-aid. There's a terminal illness in their heart. It's called sin. There's an issue here that needs help. But grace kind of wants to, you know, airbrush that out, cover that up. Grace without truth would say something like, "You know, they've had a rough life. Give them a break." And I would say, "Well, the No, here's what that does. The fact that they've had a rough life doesn't excuse their bad behavior or their sin. In fact, it should make them want to get out of the drugstore faster and get to the surgeon. Like, I have so many wounds and scars and things, and those are my excuse for my sin, so I'm just going to get this pack of Band-Aids and patch it up. That's not going to work. You need to call the surgeon immediately. But grace tries to cover that up. Grace without truth would say, well, you know, the, the Bi- you're using the Bible. That's an ancient book. It's outdated. We've progressed past what the Bible says about sin and righteousness. No, 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 we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do a, a new standard, a, diff- a 21st century standard. We've progressed past the Bible, what it says. The problem with that is progress, apart from Christ, is actually regression. It's the opposite. Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, says the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? That has not changed. So the standard for the, for the ailment, right, the, the, the prescription for the ailment must be the same. Grace tries to cover that up, and it actually is just a band-aid on a wound that requires surgery. Grace without truth condones every decision, affirms every lifestyle, and excuses every sin, and the problem is not solved. And then here's how that undercuts The gospel. Grace without truth undercuts the exclusivity of the gospel to change lives. Here's the problem. overemphasis on grace always means well. The intention is there. The heart is there. The right motive is there. I don't want to offend that person. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to push them away with truth. So I'm going to focus on grace. Well, it's just, it's their life. It's their choice. I'm not going to tell them what to do. I'm not their judge. Or or maybe we would say, you know, I'm sure they believe or they'll get around to it, right? That's grace over truth. They even go to church sometimes or they're on their own journey, you know, just grace but no truth. But this overemphasis undercuts the exclusivity of the gospel because, like it or not, Jesus is offensive to our sinful nature. Jesus offends me sometimes, okay? Jesus offends your pastor. So when I'm reading something or when I'm praying and I'm convicted of something or I'm pointed in a different direction from what I thought or I'm corrected in something, that's offensive to my sinful nature. But I have to, I have to weigh that out and say, okay, is it my standard or is it his standard of ultimate truth? And belief in, must, must be in Jesus, so that's where the grace comes in. Oh, there, you know, maybe there's another way, or maybe God will let them in the back door. But it's like, again, Jesus is the only, Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am the door. I am the gate. All of those things, Jesus is very clear. It's him. He is the way. It's exclusive. But grace tries to find other alternatives that just don't work. There is no other way. And if people don't see that their life is full of infection and there's only one surgeon in town, then the gospel will be undercut if we emphasize grace over truth. Now let's flip the equation and see how equally damaging and undercutting truth over grace can be. So truth over grace, here's how I would describe that. Living a life of truth over grace digs a finger into the wound that worsens the infection. So in 1881, James Garfield, the 20th president of the United States, was shot at a train station. It was July of 1881. So the bullet was in there. They took, him, they took him back to a residence. They put him on a couch. They had the best doctors, experts, surgeons of the time. Uh, even Thomas Edison got involved in trying to find out how we can get the bullet out. But what they're doing, because hand washing wasn't really a thing back then, you know, way pre COVID, okay, in 1881, they're digging their fingers and, and instruments that haven't been cleaned into the president's wound. So he dies almost three months later, not from the bullet, but from the infection. Living a life of truth without grace digs your dirty finger into someone's infection and makes it worse because they refuse to get help. It pushes them away. So overemphasis on truth over grace is critical of others instead of concerned for others. And overemphasis on truth over grace shames people over what they've done. It names and labels them based on whatever sin that offends you in their life truth over grace points the finger at others, which really exposes our own hypocrisy. So when my emphasis is, is on your sin, your sin, your sin, I, I need to get the mirror out and check myself. But if we live a life of truth over grace, that's what we do. And it really reveals our own self-righteousness. Just get better. Just do better. Just be better. Well, I can't do that. Why am I expecting them to do that? But that's truth over grace. Here's, here's something that just blew my mind when I thought of it in this way. Living a life of truth over grace accuses other people of their sin. But you know whose job that is, the Bible says? That's Satan's job. He's the accuser. So do you want to help Satan on his job? Then live a life of truth over grace. You can do Satan's job, okay? Or this, living a life of truth over grace judges people all the time. And guess whose job that is? That's God's job. He's the judge. So when I live a life of truth over grace, I'm either doing Satan's job with him or I'm trying to do God's job instead of him. Neither one of those are gonna work out too great for me. So I don't wanna live that way. I don't wanna live in truth over grace. It's like the idea of the guy with the sandwich board and the megaphone on the street corner. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at today. Saying that, well, that person is evil because they believe that or they live that way or they voted for that person. They're evil, and what we'll do is we'll try to excuse this way of life by saying, well, someone should tell them. Someone needs to warn them that they're in danger. Well, maybe, but how about we don't dig our finger in the wound so much? And how about we try to get them to the surgeon? But living a life of truth over grace doesn't accomplish that. It undercuts our faith. And here's, what, here's how it undercuts. Truth over grace undercuts the attractiveness of the gospel to change lives. Because if I'm always judging someone or labeling someone, or shaming someone, are they going to be attracted to that? Probably not. That's why the woman at the well and Matthew are great examples of grace and truth. I, they probably already have a good idea of what their sin might be to some degree. They already feel a sense of shame and guilt in the way that they're trying to search and live life, and it's not working already. I'm trying to provide the alternative that is Jesus. There was an example of this in my freshman year of college, our... Uh, ministry team that I was on, we went out on Halloween night to the square in Springfield. And so needless to say, it was crazy late at night. There was all sorts of stuff going on, all kinds of people out. And uh, so we happened to find ourselves sort of, um, we just have these little, you know, like tracks and we're, we're, you know, we've been trained on how to talk to people if they're interested in faith and leading them to Christ, that sort of thing. So we're there talking to people, interacting, rubbing shoulders with all kinds of people, some of them nearly not dressed and most of them not sober and all that kind of stuff, okay? So we're on, the happen to be on this one corner in town, and on the corner right across the street is the sandwich board megaphone guy, literally, wearing a sandwich board with a megaphone, judging everybody for how sinful they are. And I thought, well, maybe that's his costume, you know? It wasn't. <laughs> that's just who that guy is. Like, he would do that the next day as well, because that's, I guess, maybe he lives, you know, on the corner there. Um, so... He's there doing his thing, you know, marching back and forth and getting people's faces, and people are getting antagonistic toward him. It's not working. Truth over grace didn't work. And so we're there with the alternative, a different way to approach the same problem, the same issue in a different way. And we were received much better than he was. So I'm telling you, this this has to be that sort of way that we live our life. It has to be grace and truth. And here's why truth over grace doesn't work. You can't scare someone into heaven. Maybe once in a while you can, uh, but typically you're going to do it for a short time, and then once the scare wears off, they're going to go right back to how they were. You can't guilt someone into heaven long term. We have to love them there. We have to grace them there. In truth, but we have to have this balance. You can't offend someone into heaven. That strategy doesn't work. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. It's not going to pay off. It's not going to work. So it's this idea of truth and grace. So we don't want to undercut personally in our lives this idea of grace with grace and truth. So we're not trying to run from the truth. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're not trying to hide from the truth. We're not trying to change the truth. Sin is sin. It is, it was, and it always will be. God is the judge and he will punish those apart from him. Yes, But we're not trying to go out of our way to offend people. We're not the judge. We're not the accuser. And so we're not trying to label. We're not trying to name call. We're not trying to, you know, say, well, it's like, no, we need to get them to the surgeon and let him do the work in their lives. We want to engage, disagree agreeably, and offer an alternative. That's the way of Jesus because he offers a better way, acceptance, forgiveness, love, hope, joy, and peace. Oh, I got a decision to make, guys. I got a little bit more to go. Can I have like 10, 12 minutes? Yes. Thank you. Okay, great. I feel much better now. Okay, because that took way longer than it should have and way longer than I thought it would. But I, this, is re, this second part that we'll end with, I'll, I'll get through it quick, I promise, is really what we see lived out and played out in Acts chapter 4. There is a personal aspect to what Peter and John are doing, but really, they are dealing with powerful people, authority figures in Acts 4. It's the religious leaders who are also really the law of the Jewish people. I mean, the Roman government's over them, but it's still the powerful people, so we also don't want to undercut uh, our efforts with the powerful Let's look again. So Peter lived it out in Acts 4, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, he also writes about it in detail. It sounds similar to what we just read earlier, but it's with this idea specifically with those in authority. 1 Peter 2, 13, Peter writes, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. Please don't leave. Whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free. Yet you are God's slaves, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Are you uncomfortable yet? Paul writes a very similar thing in Romans 13. He says, everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. So let me make sure I got this right. What are Peter and Paul saying? Submit to all authority, that's what they said respect the king that's what he said all authority comes from god and that's what i just read all authority has been placed there by god that's what he said rebelling against authority is rebelling against god it's living outside of god's will that's what they wrote and who is the emperor who is in charge of rome when they're writing this a guy named Nero, who's literally going insane as the emperor of Rome. And so much so that either he starts a fire in a major part of Rome, or when one is started, he lets it burn to have an excuse to persecute Christians. He blamed the fire in Rome on Christians in order to have a reason to execute them by the droves. And yet they write, honor him, submit to him. Follow his orders, right? It's that, that's that's, that's an insane thing to consider, but that's where they were. And once again, Peter is our instruction and Jesus is our example. We'll skip the, the first verse here real quick. We'll get to John chapter 19 and look at this example of Jesus on trial for his life before the government. Pilate is the Roman governor of this part of the world that he lives in. There's been this idea that he's calling himself the king of the Jews, so he needs to be executed. But here's what happens. Uh, John 19, verse 9. Pilate took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. And then, Jesus sa- or then Pilate says, don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. So just like in Acts 4, Jesus here is being mistreated by the authority. What he doesn't do is scream and flail. He doesn't resist arrest. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't say, when my dad finds out about this, you're in trouble. Like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that, okay? Because I think Jesus understood if he behaved in that way, he would have undercut the moment he was in. Because Pilate is really struggling with this decision internally. He knows it's the wrong thing to do to execute this innocent man, but I'm feeling like I'm in a corner and I have to. So if Jesus lashes out at him and threatens even a little bit to overthrow or, yeah, I am the king, if he he goes too far, he's going to undercut the opportunity he has here. He's going also to appear to be what he's being labeled as, an insurrectionist, a threat to Rome, a lunatic. So he knows he doesn't want to undercut the moment, but he also, grace and truth, he also doesn't back down in the face of threat from authority. Because what does he say? You say you have power. You know where that came from? God. So he, he is silent in the right moment, and he says the truth in the right moment. He lives this out. Peter and John do the same thing. When they're persecuted for their faith, when they're arrested for their faith, they have a reserved response. They're not calling for backup. They're not saying, hey, guys, come and get him. They're not, they're not making a plan to overthrow you know, the religious leaders and set themselves up. They're not doing that. But they're also not backing down. When they're told, do not speak in the name of Jesus, they say, we, we can't stop. And by default, they're saying, we won't stop. So what's the balance in this? What's the line? Let's look at this very quickly. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read an example. It'll take us a second to, uh, to get us there. But here's the litmus test. So oh, he says, obey authority, honor those in authority, right? You're subject to them, submit to them. So we do that. Whether or not we voted for them, whether or not we agree with them, whether or not we like them, it doesn't matter. So we all authority given by God. Here's the litmus test, though. We obey those in authority unless they command what God forbids or they forbid what God commands. This idea is not new to me. It's been around for a long time, so I can't take credit for that even though it sounds so good. But we obey those in authority, just like Peter and Paul wrote, unless they command what God forbids or they forbid what God commands. So Jesus, again, is commanded to deny his divinity and his kingship, which he cannot do. That's who he is. That's his mission. He refuses. Peter and John are forbidden to teach in the name of Jesus, but they've been commanded, commissioned by Jesus to do that thing. So they say, no, we're not going to go along with that. We'll we'll abide by the other things and the other laws, even though we disagree with them. We'll live under the submission of your authority, but we're not going to go that far. That's the limit. Um, There's an example I want to just read very quickly from the Old Testament that gives us a great example of this idea. It's Exodus chapter 1. Maybe a story you're not familiar with, but let's, let's look at it here. So this is the time that Moses is born. Uh, and this is a, a, kind of a, one of the reasons why he sort of survives. Exodus chapter 1, 15. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Sapphira and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So the midwives in Exodus 1, not only do they disobey authority, then they lie about it. And God blessed them. How does that not contradict with what Peter and Paul are writing about authority? Well, it checks this box. It either, it commanded what God forbid. They were commanded to take innocent life, commanded to, uh, uh, told to, forced to when God forbids that. And so they refuse and God bless them. Here's the caveat. There are many things that our government allows that I don't like. That's not what this is. There are many laws that allow certain things to be done with which I disagree based on the truth of the Bible. So I still have to submit to that authority figure. Even though they disagree, even though I disagree, even though they allow things, the distinction is if it's ever commanded or mandated or forced, then we cannot go along. So we honor. So you can petition the government if you don't like something. That's good. You can write to your congressman about something that you don't like. You should do that. You should vote according to your principles. Yes, you should speak up at school board meetings about things that you don't like. That's, that's good. That's fine. But what we want to avoid is making the political personal. Someone, just because someone has a belief that I disagree with doesn't mean my right, the truth without grace will undercut my efforts with those leaders, with those authority figures. Um, And again, I probably should have stopped and had more time for this next week, but I really want to get done with this. So um, let me see. So for instance, um, you know, China had a one-child policy for decades. They just recently sort of kind of maybe kind of lifted that. What would that mean? That would mean that for those 30 or so years, if a family has more than especially boys, right? If more than one is born, then the doctors are forced to kill that newborn or forced to abort that uh, pre-born baby. So if that ever happened in this country and you find yourself you're an OBGYN, you can resist that authority. If you're commanded to kill life, God forbids that. And so we, you would have every reason to not obey. If the government outlaws prayer, like we've seen that in the Old Testament, do not obey that. Resist that authority in every case. If they deny, you know, public church services, we will stay open until they lock us out. Right? So we're not going to obey a command that is what God forbids, or to forbid what God commands. If there ever gets to a point to where our government says you can't speak in the name of Jesus, like in Acts 4, and maybe it will happen in this country, it might happen. If that ever happens, do not obey. You are. At Full, you have full authority from God who's above them to disobey that authority. If they ever say it's illegal to live out your faith in certain ways, do not obey. It's a, it's a balance. We don't want to disrespect authority, but we don't want to disobey God. So, um, and, and if we resist that, again, Peter and Paul say, if we resist authority without, those, without that obvious reason, we are disobeying God. We are not living in, uh, under God's authority. Will So I didn't vote for them, doesn't matter. Not my party, not my values, doesn't matter. Don't agree with them, doesn't matter. They're corrupt, they're immoral, doesn't matter unless they command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. We want to keep this balance to not undercut our witness. One more thing and then we'll close. Here's why. Romans 12, 2, Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So our culture is overly politicized. Our culture is overly divisive. If we as Christians enter into that and are no different, we have conformed to the pattern of this world. Once again, I'm not saying don't stand for righteousness. What I'm saying is don't become unrighteous in your stand. That's the balance. Speak up on things that the Bible says. Speak against the thing that the Bible commands us to, yes, but not in a way that undercuts your efforts for your faith. Stand for righteousness, but don't become unrighteous in your stand. This is, again, personally and with people in positions of power, grace and truth. Be the salt that attracts people to Jesus. Be the light that points people to Jesus. Let's try to live within this balance and see just how powerfully God can use us for his glory. Let's pray. God, I know that what we have talked about today isn't always easy to hear. Definitely isn't easy to always figure out. Isn't easy to live out. There's nuance to it. There's a balance to it. There's patience and wisdom involved in that. And we don't always get that balance right. But God, help us to see people the way that you see them. Help us to see everyone, even those who are antagonistic toward our faith, even leaders who allow the the worst types of evil all over the world. May we see even those people who come against us as your prized creation. They're also made in your image. You also deeply love them. You gave your son on a cross for them. And so may our efforts in order to speak the truth also have grace involved, to not undercut our efforts to reach those people for you. And may we not be so full of grace that we skip out on the truth and mislead people. Make them think that they're okay when they're not. Make them think that their life is fine how it is when it's not. May we find, try to find this balance of grace and truth. Whether it's a coworker or a neighbor or a member of our family or someone in a position of authority and power, may we not be hateful towards them but heartbroken for them. May we take a stand for righteousness, but not become unrighteous in our stand. May we speak in truth and love. May we live in grace and truth to find this balance in our lives, to love our neighbor, to honor authority, and to live for you. May our lives be lives that don't undercut our faith, but may instead you undergird our faith and our efforts to see lives changed and transformed, to see eternal destinies altered from the flames of hell to the glory of heaven because of what little part we play through our life and our witness. Grace and truth for those that we know well and those that we don't know at all. May we live that life in the way of Jesus to transform those around us for your glory. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.